Hello, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the From Starving to Savvy podcast for independent artists. Here, we share stories from artists, arts administrators, and other professionals working at the intersection of art and technology. Together, we work to interrogate the landscape of the arts industry and attempt to inject a refreshed sense of optimism to unravel the narrative of the starving artist. From Starving to Savvy is funded and produced by Last Draft Incorporated, a story company that specializes in online branding and expression for artists, entrepreneurs, and professionals with personality. I'm your host, Renee Coughlin, and you're listening to From Starving to Savvy. Hello, everyone, and thank you so much for tuning in. This week's episode features an interview with Mercedes Kasha, who is the co-artistic director of the London Committee for Cross-Cultural Arts, also known as Sunfest. Sunfest is an award-winning festival that attracts over 225,000 people each year to London's downtown. It is a free world music and jazz festival that spans four days and presents over 40 bands across five different stages. Mercedes is the daughter of Alfredo Cacha, who is the founder of Sunfest. As Mercedes will tell you, no matter how hard she tried to pursue other career paths and interests, Sunfest always pulled her back. As you'll hear in our conversation, Sunfest is so much more than a music festival and really aims to mirror the beauty of diversity that exists in our local and global community. As a person who was born and raised in London, Ontario, I've never known a summer without it and it's such a beautiful place to honor and celebrate our diversity as a community. I'm so grateful to Mercedes for taking the time to share her perspective of Sunfest and its role within our community, what it takes to keep a festival free and accessible for all people, as well as her plans and hopes for the future. I hope you enjoy the interview, and thanks again for listening. Hello Mercedes, it's so great to have you here. I wanted to just start off today by asking you to tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do in this city of ours here. <laughs> okay, <laughs> sure. Um, well, I am currently the co-artistic director of the London Committee for Cross-Cultural Arts, otherwise known as Sunfest. Um, and we are responsible for TD Sunfest, the world music and jazz festival that happens um, downtown London in Victoria Park, a four-day free event that uh, presents over 40 bands, uh, national and international bands, uh, over five different stages. Um, but also throughout the year, which is what a lot of people don't know, we present a lot of different concerts throughout the year um, and uh, visual arts exhibits and collaborations as well with other arts nonprofit um, organizations uh, whether it be in London or in Toronto Kitchener um, mostly southwestern Ontario region um, so for myself um, I've been in this particular role probably for about almost 10 years now um, and I started with the organization since I was eight <laughs> sold <laughs> on a very volunteer basis uh, just because my father was um, the founder of it so I was always around it my entire life and I admittedly tried to do other things as well <laughs> so I was a teacher a marketer um, I lived in a couple different places but I always 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 came back to Sunfest and I always did Sunfest um, and when it came to 
artist recruitment, music curation, um, vendor coordination. That's what I've been doing really seriously for the past 10 years. Um, And so for myself, uh, like I am a trained musician, but I don't perform. Um, So I play piano and saxophone. And I dabble in other instruments as well. Um, but I've never, ever performed. I don't like being on stage. <laughs> so, so I love to present other musicians. Um, and that's something that I guess with my dad, my dad is a musician. He does perform. Um, I've developed that ear um, to kind of select music uh, based on my personal likes, but also just on the artistic value of them. Um, so even if I don't really know the genre, for example, I can really pick out a good band, which is something that um, I really value and is important in our roles. Um, so for ourselves, you know, we try to present as many different music genres, represent as many communities, ethnicities, races, countries, etc., um, just to really represent the diversity that lives not only within London, but within Canada and the world. Um, just because we have so many people that come to the festival and to our events, we want to make sure that they feel representation um, and inclusivity, of course, which is inclusivity the main, is the main really uh, priority for us, which is why our festival is free and will never be a paid for event because we want to make sure that everyone can access arts and culture. Um, And so that's largely what our job is throughout the year. A lot of people ask like, oh, you do the festival? Is this really a full-time everyday job? And yes, it is Um, precisely because it's free. So we, you know, there's a lot of grant writing involved. There's a lot of sponsorship recruitment involved. Um, There's a lot of, especially a lot of cultural advocacy within this time right now during the um, pandemic. That's been really the bulk of our work right now is making sure that we're um, part of those associations, local, uh, provincial, federal, and even um, continental. You know, like we part, we're part of North American Presenters Networks, we're part of World Music Networks throughout the world. Um, and essentially those are not only learning opportunities to really understand what's going on in the music industry right now, but also just to continue to get ideas as to how we can make sure that arts and culture remains at the forefront when it comes to, um, you know, what people think about when it comes to budgeting, um, especially government budgets, you know, arts and culture tend to be the first ones that are cut whenever there's a, there's a, there are budget cuts happening. So we want to make sure that those are very well preserved. Um, So that is usually a big part of our job as well and making sure that we're collaborating with others. so that's kind of the day-to-day, <laughs> the day-to-day, making sure we're continuing to present music, be present, um, you know, collaborating with um, not only other organizations, as I mentioned before, but also other countries. So we have really good relationships with um, Colombia, for example. We're always presenting Colombian bands, uh, really good relationship with South Korea. So we're always presenting South Korean bands as well, and really many, many countries all over the world. Um, and so it's about that continued partnership, cross-promotion, and collaboration. If you can go back to kind of the early days of Sunfest, um, I know you shared in another interview that you did with Hillary about Sunfest as a mirror um, and Sunfest as being this space that models back the diversity that exists within our London community. Has it always been that from the very beginning? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes, absolutely. So uh, my father, Alfredo, he, um, 
used to work for a, another nonprofit organization and he was very, he was responsible for um, kind of connecting newly landed immigrants and refugees um, either to each other or just to their culture in general. So he put on smaller events like speaker series, storytelling, even concerts, things like visual art exhibits, et cetera, um, with the goal to really have those immigrants and um, refugees be able to come to together and kind of meet each other. Um, and so because he was seeing so many immigrants come through the, those doors, he was like, there's opportunity here to present to um, not only these communities, but also to the larger, you know, um, let's say Caucasian community that exists that isn't necessarily aware of what these cultures are. Because at that time, it was very, um, uh, very much a stereotype and traditional uh, image that you would present to different cultures. So, you know, everyone thinks Ukrainian music, they think the red boots and the dancing, or they think Mexican music, they think mariachi, um, or Brazilian music, they think samba or something like that, right? And so there's, there's certain things that you think of when you think of a culture, right? Or very largely through food. Um, and so, but the problem at that time is that there wasn't a priority to present professional musicians from these countries. It was largely, let's put on this tape, put on our traditional um, garb or, or, or clothing, and then present the traditional dances that our grandmothers used to do. And that perhaps we see every once in a while in our countries, but it's not necessarily representative of the modern and contemporary music that's emerging from these countries. And there's amazing music all over the world, right? And so there was never really a stage for a professional band to come. And so my father, as a musician, he really prioritized that. He's like, why are we playing tapes, you know, at the time tapes, or why are we playing CDs um, when there are musicians that we can pay to come and, and really expand this energy, show what's contemporary, show what's emerging from that country, um, and, but always with that, like, folkloric root. So there's still an element that's very, very, um, I guess, native to whatever country it is that they're representing. Um, so that was the idea. So, so in order to ensure that people have that culture and have that music to break down those barriers of like, what is the idea of this country? Like, what does this country represent? What is found within this country? So if, for example, you bring um, a band from Mexico and they're playing punk rock, but with elements of Haropo in it or something like that, that's really cool and super unique and something that nobody would ever really expect, but perhaps is super normal in Mexico, you know, and like, and, but it's not at all here. And so it's really great because it, it allows people to learn from each other and just learn in general in their lives and be able to connect with their community if they don't necessarily get to see that every day um, and also connect with their neighbors. So yeah, absolutely. That was the, the idea of the, of the festival from the beginning and it continues to be that. And it always was, it has to be free. Because especially in London, it just felt as though people weren't willing to spend the money and take a chance on something unknown. So if like a huge band comes to um, Bud Gardens, for example, it's like Bob Dylan comes. Everyone knows Bob Dylan, right? And so they're willing to spend $100, $200, $300 on the ticket, if not more. Um, but if you bring a huge Afrobeat star from Nigeria, let's say, you know, Sean Kuti, he's a massive, massive star that he needs security because he's like the Beatles. Women go crazy over him. But here in London, nobody knows him. And people won't necessarily be willing to pay that money unless they really, truly know him, which at the time, 
you know, back in the nineties, you don't have Spotify, you don't have, you know, even Napster at the time, you didn't have that, nothing. Um, so people didn't necessarily know it unless they heard it through word of mouth or if there was a really great radio show that they tuned into. Um, so there wasn't that opportunity for people to really go and explore it unless they took that chance and spent that money. But it was very unlikely at the time for them to do that. Mm-hmm. So how did you do it, especially in those early days, if you're getting these huge artists from other countries and not charging an admission fee, how do you do that? How do you curate a totally free festival? It's something I, every year going to Sunfest, I marvel at it. And like you're saying, over half of the population of London goes to this festival. And it's so amazing. Um, And clearly people want to be there. And when you, when you remove the financial barrier, people show up. How are you able to do that? Uh, through a lot of blood, sweat, and tears. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Next question. <laughs> yeah, no. Um, we have a very diversified uh, financial model, I guess yeah. you could say. Um, and so obviously um, there are various ways that we have to get revenues, but we do rely on, um, not heavily, but we rely on grants, um, especially provincial and federal grants, um, because we do create tourism, we do create an economic impact. And so we do spend money and time to study how that affects it. So if we're attracting people to come to London, which in our last economic impact study, one in four are from outside of London. Mm-hmm. So that's amazing. That's a huge number. 25% yeah. of the people are from outside. And then I think it was about 50% of them are under 35. So that's a massive opportunity for people um, to promote themselves. So therefore sponsorships get involved, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So there's a great marketing opportunity there. Um, There's a huge opportunity for people to come and sell their product. That's why we have a huge marketplace. Um, And then also we've become known internationally as a very much a, a gate opener for North America for certain bands because because of the fact that we don't charge, Mm -hmm. we don't necessarily need a huge headliner to attract people to come. Mm -hmm. So we're, it it took many years to get there. um, But we're finally in a position where because we don't charge money, we don't have to have a huge, massive star on our marquee or commercial act um, in order to bring people to the park because Mm -hmm. people now know it as a place of discovery. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so and that's a great reputation to have. And those are the ways that, you know, we rec- we get grants, we recruit sponsors, uh, we get donations. People are very can be very, very generous. And we're so thankful for that. People donate their time as volunteers like we're during the festival season. We're 95 percent volunteer run like it's okay. and even us like we're t- putting in hours way over what we're paid for. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's 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 a lot of just passion behind it. Um, if this were a lucrative and a nine to five kind of job, I don't think, you know, like, like, I don't think anybody would do it if they knew it wasn't that, you know, it takes way more hours. It takes your weekends. It takes your evenings. It takes networking, partnering, making sure that you can collaborate with others. So, you know, bringing bands, for example, um, we try very hard to bring bands that can get, um, a grant or sponsorship for their flights because in that way they get paid um, very well. 
But if they can't, then we ask them, okay, well, how much money do you need to make a tour in Canada? And they give us a number. And then we try to find other festivals and other venues in order to increase their offers and then get to that number. And that way they can tour Canada. So it is a lot of curation, but it is a lot of booking. So we act as agents sometimes because we do try to connect them with, um, with other organizers. Um, and so, but we really have to be passionate about the the band that's coming and that mm -hmm. it's new and innovative and just incredibly musically talented. And so for that reason, we're invited a lot to a lot of conferences around the world um, because they know that we book bands, mm -hmm. right? And so, and so we're invited, they fly us out, they put us up and in order to check out these music conferences and these showcases, in order to hear these bands, these emerging bands or these incredibly well-known bands in their countries, but aren't necessarily well-known in North America. Mm -hmm. So the bands themselves take a risk coming to Canada, touring in Canada, I'm as I'm sure you know, is not easy mm -hmm. and it's expensive yeah. um, because we're so big with few big centers to stop at, right? Whereas like if you're in Europe, you can drive an hour down the road and you'll be in a totally different city, totally different audience with another amazing performing arts center. Yeah. You know, <laughs> that's, but that's not the reality or the truth in Canada. Yeah. Um, they might be playing a bar you know, or they might be playing a restaurant or something like yeah. that. Um, so yeah, those are risks that the band need to be willing to take and need to understand too, that they're playing to audiences that don't know them. Yeah. Um, and so, and we, we try to, like, we don't necessarily say, okay, they're super well known in their country. So we have to bring them. We're like, no, no, no. Our first priority is, are they awesome as a band? Yeah. And are they something that we think people will really enjoy and connect with? And so that's our first priority. And so that's how we bring them and how we choose them. But yeah, putting on the event, it's expensive. Mm -hmm. And that's the majority of our job is to really find those funds to do that. But someone's got to do it or else it won't be done. Yeah. <laughs> um, I do want to ask too, because I know um, this might be kind of a stumbly question. It's just something that I thought about while you were sharing that. Um, a few bands that we've met in the last year have shared that they have a really hard time finding other festivals across Canada that have slots, especially in the folk music world, um, mm -hmm. that a lot of artistic directors have stayed in this lane of um, categorizing world music or having a particular like white culture framework for this idea of a folk music festival mm -hmm. and um and they've shared that they have maybe one or two slots open for bands that would fit that world music genre yeah and so what is that like trying to work alongside other festival directors and saying you know we we have these great bands from all over the world and let's get them places to play and let's get them in your festival lineup. Has that become easier? Has that changed at all? Um, yes and no. Um, that's a great question because uh, that's something that we really pride ourselves in is that world music. And I say that in quotes yeah. um, or, or global music or whatever term that you want to talk or call it. Um, we're, pretty much one of the few that prioritize it like that's mm -hmm. what our festival is about yeah. whereas other festivals as you say they they have certain slots allotted for that and then the rest is largely you know westernized folk or commercial music mm -hmm. um and so 
Yeah, it's, it's, it is definitely a challenge, I would say, because it, de- it just depends on who the artistic director is at that time. They could okay. be of, of those organizations. They could be incredibly open-minded mm-hmm. and, and just be like, you know what? This is great. I trust you. I trust your opinion. If those two other people are on board, let's book them. Okay. Um, but then other ones might, you know, be really specific about the music that they want to pick. Um, you know, there's so many factors. They could have a radius clause, for example. So Southwestern Ontario could be really difficult to book. For example, if our friends in Kitchener want to book a band, same as us, mm-hmm. um, it, but, but they can't book them because Guelph already booked them because they're less than a hundred kilometers out or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot of factors that are involved there, but I do find now because of festivals like ours, because of organizations like ours that we, let's say, took the risk of doing it. Mm -hmm. And they've realized that we've been really successful at it. They're now more open Mm -hmm. to other bands, right? And because we're cognizant of perhaps, it's it's a relatively small community. So because we're cognizant of, okay, maybe the artistic director, and just to name a name, artistic director from Sudbury, brand new guy, young dude, he's awesome. Um, it looks like he's really open. So I'm going to suggest these three bands as opposed to the last artistic director, he or she didn't really necessarily like it. So I would have only done this band because they're a little bit closer to Scottish music or something like that, because that's what, so you really have to, it's a very personal community. Like you really have to get to know the people um, and get to know exactly what their mandate is. For example, um, Nuit d'Afrique in Montreal, it's a paid and free uh, festival. It's a week long festival. There's some paid events and some free events. Um, And we know that they present not only music from Africa, but also music from the diaspora of, of, you know, African people. So it could be Afro-Colombian, could be Afro-Cuban, you know, it could be from all over the world, as long as there's some roots back to Africa. Um, And so we know, okay, we can present all of these bands to them and see if they want to collaborate. Whereas, you know, there could be Kultrun in, in, in Kitchener, who, same as us, prioritizes world music and jazz. And so therefore, we're like, okay, we can present all to, you know, and see which one she likes the best, you know. Right. So um, it has gotten easier, I would say, but it's still a challenge. Mm-hmm. And I would say that bands, yes, they play festivals, but they tend to find more venues that they can go play at after us or before us. Um, So depending on where they land first, whether it be in Toronto or Montreal or in here in London. Um, And then of course, too, it depends on how ambitious they are too. If they want to go out West, right. (laughs) They could do that. There are festivals that present solely world music and that's amazing, but then it's about the cost issues of whether or not they want to go. So that also typically if they do a tour in Canada, they'll do, and they're successful in their first one, they'll do a second one in this other region that they didn't go to. So either they start in the East or they start in the West. Okay. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Very like, I don't know, spinning plates when it comes to uh, booking the bands and booking the artists and making sure they're tours. But yeah, I can see where the frustration lies with, with the artist. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I totally appreciate what you're saying about a, it being a relationship game as well, because I do, um, I never realized how small the music community really is because it feels like it's so big when you're thinking of mm-hmm. like a, an international community of people, right. Who work together mm-hmm. around music and art. And, um, and yet when you all come to conferences and stuff, it's like, 
you're so much more connected. Yeah. <laughs> you talked about it as kind of as Sunfest as being this um, mirror and space to, you know, show back diversity. And you talked, shared a little bit about the changes that you've seen. And I'm wondering if you can share a little bit about what are your kind of big hopes and dreams for the festival? I'm sure that as you've been part of it since you were eight, that you've seen it grow and change a lot over the years. And, um, and I'm Mm -hmm. just curious about, you know, future aspirations or um, what kind of visions, obviously without giving away any super important secrets, but. (laughs) (laughs) No, I think during COVID there's, there's no secrets. <laughs> I think in yeah. the sense that we're all just, we're just hoping and dreaming and seeing what we can do. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know my, my hope. And actually it was, it was, we were going to start it this year um, is, you know, I, our, our, okay. I guess our long-term goal would be always to kind of pull like a Montreal jazz festival. Like let's take over downtown London. Oh. Let's fill the streets with music and stages and just people being able to wander around from stage to stage oh. and do that. Like how great would that be? Right. That would be amazing. So that is definitely the like long-term let's hope for the best. If everything falls into place in a few years, we can maybe do that. Mm -hmm. Who knows? Um, So that's always been kind of our dream, but also at the same time, what I would like to see specifically because we're talking about, you know, sort of the, the difference of our festival compared to others, Mm -hmm. paid events, you know, things like that. And whereas absolutely we need to find, ways to create revenue. That's super, super important. Um, At the same time, we can't forget why it is that we do what we do. And I think, you know, because of the way that this industry can be very much a business, um, you tend to sometimes forget about the artist. You forget about the art itself and what it does to connect communities, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So I think a lot of the times some festival or event planners or artistic directors or executive directors might just forget that base. It's about the artist. If it wasn't for, if it wasn't for the artist, we wouldn't have anything to present or anything to showcase. Right. Um, and so for me, being able to put an audience in front of that, uh, that artist is really important and vice versa, putting that artist in front of the artist, uh, artist in front of the audience. Um, and so I would love to see, more replication of our model in terms of it being a free and accessible event. Mm. And so one of the things that we were hoping to do this year uh, was to create sort of like a mini conference, like invite delegates to the festival uh, from all over the world and not only see the bands that we're presenting from the Canadian side, because half of the bands that we uh, book are Canadian um, and maybe export them, do business with them and whatnot. But the other idea was also for them to see our festival and for them to understand how big it is, the magnitude of it um, and how successful it is Mm -hmm. and just how the audience interacts with each other, the age range of the audience, because it's babies to seniors, like, you know, and so it's, it's so diverse in not only demographics, but, you know, race and ethnicities, religion, everything. Right. And so it would be amazing to have people come and say, maybe I should do this in my country or in my city, you know, and make art accessible as much as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's my hope. I think because the industry has been so hard hit by what just happened, there's a huge opportunity right now to kind of change the models that we've been working with. Mm-hmm. Like why prioritize those big commercial acts, right? 
in order to sell tickets? Why not just take that risk and say, hey, I believe in my music curation abilities and I believe in the talent of the artists that I'm wanting to book. I'm, st- I'm going to do it. I'm just going to book making sure that at least half the bill are women and making sure that it's culturally diverse and making sure that it's representing all communities as much as possible. And so I think that's my hope for the future of the industry is just that representation, that inclusivity model, Mm -hmm. and that accessibility model, accessible in all senses of the word, but especially economically. Mm -hmm. Um, I think one of the best feedback that we get and that warms our heart and motivates us to keep forward is knowing people that grew up with the festival and saying, I now take my kids Mm -hmm. because my parents took me. And I think like that gives me chills, you know, and like really, really good chills in the sense that I'm so happy that you grew up with it. I'm so happy that you wait for it every year. And I'm so happy that you're now passing this down as an event that you go to, to your kids. Mm -hmm. And so it makes me feel kind of old sometimes, (laughs) but, (laughs) but no, it's great. Like, I think, I think in the end, that's the most beautiful part of the festival is that you can bring your family. You don't have to find a babysitter. You don't have to spend all that money. Spend your money on buying food or buying crafts and arts or going shopping or whatever it is. Spend it that on that mm-hmm. as opposed to an entry fee. Yeah. Beautiful. <laughs> and I have to, um, I want to just say it's the, it's one of my, it probably is my most favorite event. Really any event that Sunfest puts on in London is my absolute favorite because it has this, it draws something out of people that is so mm-hmm. beautiful and alive and real. And I so look forward to it every time. Um, I, I think it's, I don't know what it is. I, it has to just be <laughs> the bands, that, the bands that you get and, and the, just the people it's like, um, when I was a kid, I, I remember having this really clear memory of like, and I, I wouldn't use this language now, but as a young child, I always thought, you know, what a beautiful place of weirdos. Um, <laughs> and I think it's because it's this, this space where you don't have to conform and be somebody that mm-hmm. you're not. Um, and, the, and the diversity that is showcased in the, the musical acts and the artists that are there, they just give permission to people to show up as mm-hmm. they are. And I think it's so beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so beautiful. And it actually, okay, so this story leads me to another question. Okay. In this interview that you did with Hillary for the article, mm-hmm. um, you shared a story about inviting a band to play. And you'll have to clarify the story because I don't remember the specific details, but there was a political difference of opinion Mm, mm -hmm. between um, a band that was being showcased and there was some protesters that were there Mm -hmm. and you were able to create space for both of these people. And this question emerged of whether Sunfest is a space to engage politically. Can you share a little bit? Do you remember what I'm talking about? I think so. Yeah, I think so. I think it was about the, um, we presented a band, I forget in what year it was, um, the Jewish monkeys. Um, and so we had, um, a a group of Palestinians obviously wanting to come and protest Mm -hmm. that. And then actually last year we had a Palestinian band and we had a group of Israelis that wanted to protest that as well. So, um, yeah. But the funny thing is, is that you end up finding 
people of different religions and cultures dancing in front of them regardless. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And um, I think it was the band from last year, from Palestine last year, who said, who were making statements on stage because obviously they've been through turmoil um, about what's going on in their country. And we got, we did get some social media feedback uh, from some audience members, not too much, but a bit enough to, for us to notice um, that, you know, people were saying, Sunfest isn't a place for politics. It's to enjoy music and, 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 and that's it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, go eat and things like that. Yeah. That's, that's one way to look at it. Absolutely. And like, if that's what you take away from the festival is a place to enjoy music, go eat some food and dance hundred percent. We love it because that's celebrating life mm-hmm. and that's what we should all be doing mm-hmm. at all times. Um, but I would say that Sunfest existing in a place like London, Ontario in and of itself is a political statement. Mm. <laughs> so if you think about that, really, yeah. um, because if it weren't for the amount of work that we do throughout the year to advocate, because believe it or not, we have to justify every single year our mm. existence within London, um, whether that be with sponsors, whether that be with grants, whether that be with city officials, whether that be with provincial or federal officials, we constantly have to justify why we exist in London. Um, and so us existing as a culturally diverse event is a political statement. Mm -hmm. We believe in ourselves. We believe in the power of music to bridge people together as a a vehicle to bring people together. Um, And we especially believe music from all over the world representing as many different cultures as possible will do that. And so whereas there could be advocates that say, diversity doesn't work, multiculturalism doesn't work, we're all too different, that kind of thing. I think we've proven that it does work for us Mm -hmm. and it does work in that celebratory model. And so when it comes to protesters coming in, we don't want as a festival, we don't want any agenda to take over the festival because again, we want it to be a safe space, a safe space as inclusive as possible for people, as you say, to come in and dance and do whatever, show up as themselves. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? But we don't want the message of the festival to be overcome by any other message. Mm -hmm. Right. And so at that point, you know, we do rent the park. And so we say, hey, these corners of the park are technically free space. Do what you want there. Block the entrances, the official entrances of the park. If that's what you want to do, go for it. And we talk to them calmly that way. Mm-hmm. But you can't go and run the stage. I'm sorry, because that's over, overtaking the message. Mm-hmm. And so I think talking to those groups like that, mm-hmm. saying, you know, if that's what you want to do, if you want to make a statement in front of at these four corners of the park, Go ahead and do that because in the end it is free space and we don't want you to be silenced either. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, as I mentioned, we don't want the message of the music and of the, of the festival as a whole to be overtaken. So I think in that way, we've been able to create a balance. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the end, also too, we just have to know we can't please everybody. We're always going to get complaints about something. Again, because there's so many different agendas, uh, you know, demographics, opinions, everything mm-hmm. in the park. But again, because it's a positive environment that we've created, there's no room for that negativity or anything like that. And so I think in the end, people understand that just us existing is a political act. And so that's okay. So that's the act that we need to embrace at that moment. Mm -hmm. I love the way that you talk about music and art and it being so much more than entertainment and and also mm-hmm. celebrating the entertainment factor, as you said, you know, it's this gift that we have in life and we can celebrate it and that's okay too. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about 
what it is to you about music and art that acts as that connecting factor, you know, across generations and across culturally diverse backgrounds? Mm -hmm. What is it about? That's a good question. I mean, I answered a similar question yesterday um, in an interview that I had and like, why is art and culture so important to you? And uh, for me, you know, I grew up, you know, in the 80s and 90s here in London. And um, I went to a certain school because my parents wanted my brother and I to learn French. And so we went to a school that didn't have any immigrants in there. We were two of six kids of color in a, a school of like four to 500 kids. And so for me, I felt like, you know, when kids saw us and they saw how different we were, you can imagine the repercussions at the time of what we felt, you know, and it wasn't very positive. But when you had, when you, I had my friends come over and they like listened to our music and they saw like the, the traditional textiles that were all over a house on like a, a blanket or a tablecloth or something or a purse that I had, um, or they ate my mom's food you know, that's when they were like, oh, this is so cool. This is awesome. Or, oh, this is delicious. So this is great or something like that. And so for me personally, it always was a way to connect. Don't think that you always have to connect people in a lecture or like a, uh, like a speech kind of way. Do you know what yeah. I mean? I think there are more easily digestible and also beautiful ways in which to connect with people. And to me, that's what art and music are. Mm -hmm. They're beautiful ways of expression to connect to each other, but also to tell a story about ourselves. So whether that be about our culture and our background, our family, or just about something really personal about ourselves. And so I think for me, that's why it's so important because not only is it pleasing to the eye or the ear or creates a feeling for you, you know, some people, when they listen to music, they have different types of feelings, right? And so I think that's, such a commonality that we all share. We all share a beat. We all share a need to move. You know, our bodies were made to move. And so dancing and music for me is that's the importance of it. Mm -hmm. I also grew up in a very um, activist household, I guess you could say. So my parents are uh, refugees from Guatemala and they were living in a time before coming to Canada that, um, you know, the government uh, barred them from listening to certain kinds of music, wow. right? So protest music, yeah. let's put it that way. And you could go to jail or even be killed for listening to different kinds of music. Um, so especially movements of the new song, like this, this movement called Nueva Canción, the new song, where they talked about the people and, and, and the worker and the rights of the people and the rights of the worker, you know, and they did it in a very soulful way. You know, it could be a man and a guitar. It could be with a full band. Um, and so that was their way to get their message across. So I guess I always had that in the back of my mind as well, is thinking of music not only as a connector, but as a messaging system um, that was really important to listen to. And typically it is artists that take that risk. Mm. You know what I mean? Whether it be a financial risk, because, you know, as an artist, <laughs> that typical starving artist, you know, stereotype of it, like it's, it can be true to a, to a sense. Um, they take that risk, but then they take that risk with putting out their visual art, abstract painting. Artists are the risk takers. And so I respect them. Um, and I respect their art when it comes to that. So yeah, I would say that that's kind of where I see it and where I see that place. And that's why 
you know, even though I'm not a performing musician, I respect musicians so much for what it is that they do, because to know that they got on stage, it took them hours and hours of not only creative process, but practice and perfection and driving and touring and, and, and saving up money for that amazing guitar or, you know, pedal or amp, you know? And so I think that needs to be preserved and that needs to be respected. Mm-hmm. I feel like I'm just like, keep talking, just go where, anywhere, <laughs> anywhere you want to take it. <laughs> um, I really, really appreciate that perspective. And, um, I mean, beyond curating this festival, because I think you really hit on something important when you talked earlier about the festival being a model for other people and that having a free festival does something for for fans, for sure, in it being financially accessible, but it does something huge for artists, too, because I think it means that you're supporting this whole middle class of artistry that aren't selling out arenas and drawing a huge mm-hmm. fan base. And I'm, I'm curious, I guess, if you can add on to that, and, and that's huge in itself, but what are, what are some of your other hopes or why do you do what you do for art's sake or for the artist's sake? Well, I think that that is specifically why this year we were hoping to do that conference model. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? In order to create more opportunities for Canadian artists, because if we had all these artistic and executive directors coming in and journalists coming in from all over the world, um, they had that chance to see it. So it was like a showcase. Um, but one thing that we've noticed and that although we love music markets, we love going to conferences, we'll never stop loving that. I think one thing that lacks sometimes is the public and like that, um, like that organic and raw um, feedback from the audience, because sometimes you go to conferences and because as a, as like a, as an artistic director or as like a booker, I guess you could say, um, you tend to sometimes see a band and you're like standing in the back and you're like, Hmm, I don't know about that beat though. You know, or something you get really, really critical about it. Um, I try not to, I try to be at the front of the stage and dance and encourage the, the, the musicians as much as I can. But you know, sometimes you, you are like, mm, I don't know about this, you know, yeah. whereas if you're an audience member and you're just discovering this music for a new time, you might not necessarily be, um, let's say, educated in the sense of like musically educated, right? But you just know you like music and you know you love seeing live music. Um, And then you go and see a band and you have this like cool experience and like you dance like crazy or you're just back sitting a beer, bobbing your head. You know, I think it's important for other um, artistic directors to really see that. So that was our idea, right? It was like, let's do the showcases as the festival itself. That way it has not only music professionals in the audience, but also just a general public audience from kids to seniors, you know what I mean? Enjoying the music and that way they can really see it. So I thought that was going to be a really cool experience for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have had guests coming to the festival before, just not in like a huge group. Um, and we did have uh, a radio station come in from Chicago as part of NPR. And they came and did some live to airs from the festival and a couple of interviews and they came before they were leaving. They're like, thank you so much for inviting us. This was amazing. And they're like, this is the largest family-friendly event we've ever seen anywhere. And we're like, wow. that's amazing. Yeah. That's so great. We're so happy that you would say that, you know? And it's not necessarily like a family event. Like we don't have kids rides. Right. We don't have, like there's some face painters here and there and maybe some artists that are artisans that sell things for kids, but like there's no 
kid stage. There's no like inflatable things. There's no Ferris wheels, nothing like that, that you would typically associate with like a kids or a family festival. And that's on purpose. Yeah. It's on purpose. You know, we've had offers from people being like, but I can set up a train in the middle and you can do that. And like, that sounds great, but no, we want the kids to have fun with the music and have fun with the artisans and eat the food. Like that's what we want them to do. And so, um, I guess for us, like putting that audience in front of the artists is just so important. You know what I mean? They have to see too, like how their music does outside of just like a concert where they sell tickets to it. You know what I mean? It's, it's about discovery. And so many people like come to us after and say, Holy crap, I was not expecting this band, but I saw it and I heard it and I went to see it and I just spent the entire day. And then like, I saw all of their sets. Right. And so and so for us too, we make our artists play at least two sets for the festival. They play, each artist plays at least two, sometimes three, depending on what the agreement is. And um, because we have the five different stages, we have over 80 slots to fill. And so, um, yeah, like the reason that we do that is we're bringing these bands from so far away and nobody knows them. Is it really justified to bring them for one hour? and have them play for only one hour when and like and there could be debate on this but this is just and there is debate on this but like this is my opinion you get to stay as an artist for an extra night in the hotel you get an extra day of food and you get to play which in the end as an artist is that not what you want to do yes don't you want to play (laughs) yeah (laughs) is that not why you got in the business to begin with right and so we say you have to you can come to the festival but you have to stay for at least two days Mm-hmm. And we say that to every single band. And so, you know, depending on what their schedule is like, they may like that. They may hate that. Who mm-hmm. knows? I don't know. You know, but um, for us, I think it works well because then also too, like my favorite type of artist is the artist that plays their set. They go eat some food and then they go take that food in front of a stage and then they walk around. Yeah. That's my favorite artist in the yeah. world because they not only care about doing their job, but they also want to encourage others, applaud others and discover. Yeah. So I think those are the services that I guess we provide to the artist. And I think it's pretty awesome. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and a lot of them love it. You know, a lot of them come back and say, you know, thank you so much for hosting us. Like, thank you so much for having us. And, you know, sometimes even depending on who we collaborate, they might go to Kitchener for the Saturday and then come back, like be with us on the Friday, go to Kitchener on Saturday, come back Sunday. Yeah. So we're like, that's fine too, but you have to stay for two days. It doesn't matter where, where it starts Thursday and Saturday, Friday and Saturday, whatever. You have to come for two days because our audiences don't know you and they need to get to know you. Yes. (laughs) So cool. I love, um, I mean, there's so much that you just offered in that answer. I, I, want to go back to the showcase thing or the conference Mm -hmm. idea, because I think, um, I do think that's so important. And as a musician performing at showcases is a very different experience than performing at a festival. Um, and there's a relaxedness, if that's a word, relaxedness, (laughs) um, (laughs) that I feel when around people, who are there to enjoy the music versus when you know you're kind of being critiqued, right? From a different. Mm-hmm. Um, I was going to ask that. Like, do you feel nervous in the showcase? Yeah, yeah, very. <laughs> it's a very different experience. But the other thing I love that you offered was the absence of child-directed, child-directed in quotes, um, experiences, and I think that's so powerful because, I mean, what 
is becoming much more prominent in mainstream media now is a real, from white people in particular, a lack of appreciation for diverse cultural experiences, authentic mm -hmm. diverse cultural experiences. And mm -hmm. I think that if we can introduce very young children to these kinds of things and trust them with those experiences, that it's going to move them like it moves us as adults, right? A hundred percent. And I just think it's so beautiful. Like I got full body goosebumps when you're talking about <laughs> it, because I think I, I really believe it's such an important change that we can make just by introducing young children and next generations to, to these experiences from a younger age. And actually that's something that, um, that we did do and hope to continue in the future. But unfortunately in the past, I want to say two to three years, we haven't been able to do it. Um, we usually host school shows. Mm -hmm. So we'll bring a band throughout our like uh, fall, winter and spring series. And we'll bring them the day before that they're acting at Aeolian or London Music Hall, wherever it is that we're presenting them. Um, and we're, we get them to do two school shows. Mm -hmm. And kids aged from, I think, seven to 17 come to these events, right? And the reason that we haven't been able to do it, and we did that for many, many years. Like, I remember I was a kid and I went to them, yeah. you know? And so we did that for so long with that specific idea. Let's introduce these kids to culturally diverse music um, and really get them to, and they're dancing in their seats, they're enjoying it. And that's something that they get to experience as a child and perhaps, you know, and perhaps for con consecutive years yeah. as well and will influence them later. And so um, we haven't been able to do it for the past two to three years because of the labor disputes that have been happening, you know, like work to rule and things like that. And so um, there's been very limited field trips, I guess you could say, mm -hmm. for, for school boards. And then also teachers, you know, they're completely worn out. Like some of them just don't want to take on that extra experience. So we're mm -hmm. always looking for music teachers or partners, teachers within the school boards that will partner with us in order to encourage their school to do that and adopt that model. And it worked really well for so many years and we're hoping to keep, keep on doing it. Um, but one thing, one curious story about that is that my dad was at a music conference in Montreal. I think it was M for Montreal. And this was like five years ago, I want to say. And so he goes into an elevator and, you know, coming down and a guy was standing, a young guy was standing there and like, he looked at my dad and he like, was like, you're Alfredo from Sunfest. Mm -hmm. He said, he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's like, oh my gosh. I like, I'm in the music industry because of you. Oh. <laughs> he's, like, he's like, what are you talking about? He's just like, I used to go to your school shows. I used to like, I saw when you, cause my dad would perform at some of them. He's like, I saw when you performed. I saw when like, um, oh, what was this band called? It was from Zimbabwe. It was a gumboot band. Oh, I don't remember what their name was. It's really bad. Anyway, um, he's like, I saw them. I saw like, I just like so many different bands that you brought. I brought, I saw Quebecois bands. I saw all these bands and it made me want to work in the music industry. And now I work for M in Montreal. So, so cool. like, I, I thought that was a really cool story. Like that's one of the stories that my dad's like the most proud of. <laughs> yeah. yeah. What a gift to hear something come back to you, right? Like to learn how exactly. you've influenced other people. I think I, if, <laughs> I wish that for everyone all the time. That's such a gift. That's a really beautiful story. Um, okay. So one more question. Okay. We are in the middle of pandemic days. Mm -hmm. And I know there's a lot of kind of fear and worry around it. And as you mentioned earlier, that the music industry, music and art industry in particular has been hit very hard by COVID. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if 
there's anything that's come over the last few months that is bringing hope to you and your work? Uh, yeah, a couple of things. I mean, it's not all doom and gloom. Yeah. <laughs> A lot of it is doom and gloom, yeah. um, but it's not all. I would say a few silver linings have come from this that I've really appreciated. First um, is the collaborative mm-hmm. aspect. Um, I feel like, you know, conferences were always where you go and you meet the other artistic directors or you talk about block booking or whatever it is, right? Um, and sometimes, and obviously through email, but I found that this time was because we're all in the same boat right now. Mm-hmm. We're like, what do we do? What's the future? When will be our first live event if they haven't held one already um, in some socially distanced capacity? Um, and what's the future of our, our, of our festivals? And so we all have those same questions and we don't have any of the answers. However, um, we have been able to um, support each other, you know, be a shoulder to cry on, yeah. <laughs> you know, or like share frustrations, that kind of thing, or even collaborate. Um, so that's been a really beautiful thing to see that I find the community has gotten closer in that regard and gotten to know each other a little bit better and are more open Mm -hmm. um to to that collaboration aspect going forward i think um and so that's been really nice and uh though it slowed down a little bit in the past couple weeks just because summer and people took breaks and things like Mm -hmm. that um especially from like march to like end of june it was like every single week every other day meeting with some kind of group Um, whether it be, you know, Ontario presenters or Canadian presenters or North American presenters or world presenters, like it's been really nice to connect in that regard. Um, And then the other thing would be, you know, as much as, you know, we're all doing digital stuff, we're all doing live streams, things like that. um, And as great as they are, unfortunately, they don't bring revenues. That's a bummer. So we are spending money on this stuff. We don't want the musician to do it for free by any, any means whatsoever. Um, And you have to spend money on production and all that. Um, And it's great, but it doesn't bring in revenues. Mm -hmm. The, the advantage of it, however, is that you're opening it up to a larger audience. So people from all over the world are now finding out what it is that you do. Um, So for example, um, for the digital Sunfest that we did at the beginning of July or mid July, um, you know, we had audiences from all over the world because we collaborated specifically with big events throughout the world who then shared our, our stream. And then we shared their stream whenever they had events. So we had collaborators from Cuba, Mexico, Chile, uh, Colombia, South Korea, Spain, uh, Cape Verde, like we had and Mozambique and we had those specific and then all over the province as well. And so we had those partners share our streams. And so we knew at least people from those countries were watching, but we know for a fact that tons of other people from all over the world were watching too. So that's a really big advantage because even last year, I was saying this to somebody um, on the Friday and Saturday and Sunday nights at the main stage of the festival, we streamed from 7 PM to 11 PM on Facebook um, for a couple of reasons. For one, we were cognizant of the fact that not everybody lives in London or were able to come to London. And two, um, not everyone can come to the park because maybe they're afraid of big audiences, uh, you know, large crowds. Maybe they just couldn't afford parking or just, you know, or maybe they just you know, had accessibility issues or something, yeah. right? And so we wanted to make sure to continue to create that content online, but also that accessibility point. Um, and so I think right now because of that that's an opportunity to grow your audience which i think is the same for artists too um artists in general 
to grow their audiences worldwide, like there's that opportunity right now. The downside of it, of course, is that we're, we're all competing for online attention, yeah. right? We're all completely competing for online attention. So um, it's, I think that's where we have to learn, okay, well, let's at least minimize the competition by collaborating with yeah. others. And so I think that's a really good thing. So I think going forward, that's what live music events are going to be. They're going to be this hybrid of live and digital. Um, And so I don't necessarily know what that looks like specifically, but I do think, I don't think digital is going away, but I don't think it's going to replace live either. So I think it will be that hybrid model. So my hope is that people will be right now just discovering as much as possible so that when we can return to a live music event, they'll go and support buy that ticket, buy that merch, you know, and support that artist because they've been listening to it the whole time they've been baking sourdough in their house. So <laughs> because <laughs> hopefully that's everyone's been doing. baking sourdough. In their house. <laughs> Everyone's, I even bake sourdough. I'm not a baker and I made sourdough. <laughs> that's awesome. I have a starter in my fridge. Never thought I would say Oh, that. <laughs> that's amazing. I tried, failed miserably, used the wrong kind of flour. It ended up being some weird science experiment that I couldn't eat. <laughs> At least you tried, though. <laughs> yeah. Mercedes, thank you so much You're welcome. for taking the time to do this. I got a lot from this conversation, and I'm super appreciative. Thank you. I appreciate you ta- wanting to talk to me. <laughs> that wraps up this week's episode of From Starving to Savvy. Myself, along with the whole team at Last Draft, extend our most sincere gratitude to each of you for tuning in and giving your ears, your hearts, and your time to learning more about our guests and their unique stories and experiences. Once again, this podcast is brought to you by Last Draft, an ethical, engaging, and human story company with a mission to authentically amplify the stories of those they work with. The team at Last Draft thrives on real connections, empowering stories, and authentic voices. If you are an artist or entrepreneur looking to start telling your story, Last Draft offers support through evocative written content, exciting virtual events, personal email campaigns, and more. To get in touch with a team member at Last Draft, please visit www.lastdraft.ca. Again, we extend our deepest thanks to each of you for tuning in and hope you'll be back for future episodes.